and Hashem has placed the man, the Mokam in a place, that there are many that there are many things that take man away from Hashem. These things are the physical desires. If man is pulled after these physical desires, he becomes distant and leaves the true good. In the last session we discussed that Hashem created I, the person inside, out of two competing parts. The Nefesh Bahami, the animal instinct, the Nefesh Sikhli, the Neshama, the higher part of the human. And again, to understand I, and to understand how it is that I do what I do, and ultimately to understand the Torah's system of self-perfection, I have to study myself, becoming self-aware, Becoming a scientist of the soul as much as I can is part of the job of a person who wants to grow, who wants to accomplish. If I don't understand myself, I can't plan the strategies, <clears throat> I can't map out the techniques, I can't formulate the way I'm going to grow. So part of the job of a Jew as he grows, <clears throat> as he sets his sight, is to better understand himself, better understand what makes him tick, better understand what motivates him so he could plan out his growth plan. So to do that, I'd like to spend another few minutes now on the Nefesh Bahami, Studying a little bit more that animal soul within man so we can understand how to work with it, how to conquer it, how to even use it for our benefit. So let's begin with the following observation. The behemoth side of man has no intelligence, as in zero intelligence. It's a set of programs, a set of desires, appetites, inclination, but it has no wisdom no forethought, and no ability to see the future. And the only way you could appreciate that is to go into the wild kingdom and study Nefesh Bahamis there, study animals in the wild and see their level of intelligence. And one of the best places to do that is the monkey. You see, the monkey, by all measures, is probably the highest form of intelligence in the wild kingdom. And as a matter of fact, scientists will often follow the monkey's ways and study its behaviors because it exhibits the greatest level of intelligence. Well, here's what's interesting. <clears throat> How do we measure the intelligent level of a monkey? So in 1952, <clears throat> Japanese scientists wanted to do just that. They wanted to see what they could train a monkey to do. So they found a <clears throat> small island, and on this island was a colony of macaw monkeys, and they trained these monkeys in a new behavior. Here was the new behavior. These monkeys like sweet potatoes. The scientist took his sweet potato, <coughs> mushed it in the sand, and left it on the beach. Each morning they would take <coughs> a whole bunch of sweet potatoes, <coughs> put it in the sand, kind of get it all covered with sand, and leave it there. What happened is these monkeys would see what was happening. They'd watch from the trees. When the scientist left, the monkeys would come down. They would take a bite of the sweet potato. They loved the sweet potato, but when they ate it, <coughs> They got the sand in their throat, <clears> they <throat> took one bite, maybe a second bite, and left the sweet potato there. Day after day, the scientists left the sweet potato on the beach, and <clears throat> day after day, the monkey would sometimes take a bite, eventually they stopped taking a bite because the sand in the throat was just too uncomfortable. This behavior <clears throat> went on for a long time, until one juvenile monkey, about an 18-month-old monkey, somehow took a sweet potato, and before biting into it, kind of swished it in the, in the water. 
and inadvertently it brushed off the sand. When it bit into that sweet potato, it found it was able to enjoy the delicious taste, didn't get any sand in its throat, and it consumed the entire sweet potato. Its mother, seeing what the baby did, took the sweet potato, also went to the water, <coughs> swished the sweet potato in the water, and also consumed the sweet potato. And this went on every day. The scientists would leave their potatoes, the baby monkey and the mother would take it and swish it in the water, and they would eat their potatoes. Now the question is, that behavior, how long did it take for the rest of the colony to learn? So the scientists, the scientific study began in 1952, and it wasn't until 1956 that the rest of the monkeys learned this behavior. This became known in the world as the 100 monkey syndrome. It wasn't until 100 monkeys had learned this behavior that then the rest of the colony adopted it, but it took four years. Four years, the rest of the colony saw what the baby monkey did, saw what the mother monkey did, and didn't put it together. Why? Because the monkey wasn't trained to think. It wasn't trained in consequences. It wasn't trained in intelligence. The monkey has a pre-programmed set of desires and instincts, and it will follow them. And it will imitate intelligence in many, many forms, in many fashions. But once it's outside its programmed knowledge, nothing. Much like a computer. You can train a supercomputer to beat a human being every day of the week in chess. It can think through 50,000 possible moves. It can do things that a human being never could, but at the end of the day, it's programmed within a very exact logic, can only pursue its logic, and can go no further than it. When you see somewhat intelligent-looking behaviors within the animal kingdom, what you're looking at are programs. If this, then that. If this, then that. But there's no intelligence, there's no wisdom. And sometimes it's rather sad to see. The monkey has instincts. The baboon is a very good mother. The baboon will coddle. The baboon will hold. The baboon will feed its baby. But sometimes it's a little sad because after the baby's dead, the baboon mother will be seen carrying the baby around, still trying to nurture it, still trying to feed it. The mother doesn't understand that its baby is lifeless. It doesn't hop. For days on end, it will carry around this lifeless thing and not understand that the baby is dead. Because within the nature of the baboon is a desire to nurture, and to give, to help, but it doesn't understand life or death, and doesn't understand that its baby's dead. And it's very important to understand that when you see intelligent behaviors, it doesn't mean the animal has intelligence. Squirrels will squirrel away acorns for the coming spring. They're not aware of the future. They don't know that there's going to be a time when there will be no nuts left on the trees. As a matter of fact, you'll often see birds who are born will migrate. The monarch butterfly is a classic example. The monarch butterfly will migrate 1,500, sometimes 3,000 miles. The monarch butterfly can do a migration path that's astonishingly complex. But the lifespan of the monarch butterfly is eight months. That means it's never seen a winter. It doesn't know that there's going to be a winter. And there's no one who's informing it. Within the small, very teeny brain of the monarch butterfly is an instinct to fly south. It will land on a beach in Mexico and it'll see millions, sometimes millions upon millions of butterflies all following the same migration trail, all landing on the same beaches in Mexico 
despite the fact that it's their only single migration trail. They've never been there before. <clears throat> no one showed them the way. They'll follow that path in the dark of night. <clears throat> They'll follow that path time after time, right back to that same spot, because imprinted within them is a nature, <clears throat> is an instinct, is a desire. When it looks like intelligence, don't allow it to fool you. When the bear is ravenous in the late July, early August, and it eats and it eats and it eats, the bear is unaware of the fact that it's going to hibernate. It doesn't say to itself, hmm, last winter I had to kind of you know, eat up all of my fat in that, in that uncomfortable you know, trunk that I was hanging out. I better make sure I eat a lot now. There's an instinct, there's a desire to eat. It's hungry. It just needs to eat and it eats and it eats and it eats. And the reason why this is important to understand is because only when you understand the nature of the animal can you then try to understand better yourself. And if you'd like to really understand how it is that we operate, I have a muscle that I think is imperative to really focus on. I want you to imagine the following. Imagine that you get to see a young yeshiva student on his first Purim that he decides to get a bit tipsy and maybe a little bit more than a bit tipsy. We'll give him a name. We'll call him Shmuel. <coughs> Shmuel's a first year base medrash guy. And this year he decides, that's it, I'm already base medrash. I can get drunk. And he has a bit more than he should to drink. And he's out there in the street. And you see him and say, Shmuel, what are you doing? What am I doing? I'm playing. Shmuel, you're playing with car. I know, I'm playing in traffic. Shmuel, you're playing in traffic. You're going to get hit by a car. I know. <laughs> when the car is going to hit me and smack, crack, goes my back. Shmuel, you're going to get hit by one of those cars and it's going to smash you and hurt. Very I know. <laughs> They're going to send me to the hospital and the doctors will put me back together. They'll put pins in my back and, and when I go through the metal detector, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> What's going on? Shmuel is conscious. He's alert. He understands the consequence. He said, I'm going to get hit by the car, smack, crack, goes my back. They're going to put pins in my spine. So <clears throat> clearly he's intelligent. Clearly he's, he's with the program. But he's not. His brilliant consciousness is blurred. His thinking is slurred over. He gets in and he doesn't. He's hazy, he's woozy, he's sort of a... Ah. That is the human. There's a part of me that's brilliant and insightful. There's a part of me that knows that I was brought from under the Kisya covered. There's a part of me that knows with absolute clarity that I'm going to die. There's a part of me that knows that forever I am what I shape myself into. That every action shapes me and molds me. That every act of chesed makes me into a more kindly person. Every act of selfishness damages me. I get it with total clarity. And yet I don't. I can say it. I can think about it. But I'm kind of like Shmuel, that drunk yeshiva guy. <clears throat> there's a part of me that gets it, but there's also a nefesh, a bahami, there's an animal soul within me, and I'm in flux, I'm back, I'm forth, I get it, I don't, I'm confused, I'm hazy. And that's the human. <clears throat> there are moments that we really get it. Moments when I understand, moments I perceive, and a split second later, it's gone. And the same second, I could get it and not get it. Would you like to know how Noah, a tzaddik of such unparalleled proportions, didn't believe it wasn't until the Maya Mabal, it wasn't until the water forced him in, until it came up to his thighs, that he actually believed that Hashem was going to do it. But for 120 years, that's what he taught his generation. <clears throat> for 120 years, he built that Teva. But he got it, and he didn't get it. He understood it, and he didn't understand it. And if it's for Tzadik like Noah, believe me, it's many, many more times so for us. Any concept that we get that's not immediate and revealed, that's not right here in front of me, is kind of hazy and kind of not. Would you like to know why it's so hard to daven? 
It's so hard to daven because there's a part of me that denies Hashem's presence. There's a part of me that instinctively feels that Hashem is right here. I'm speaking to the Creator of the heavens and earth right here. And there's a part of me that says, no way. If I can't feel it, if I can't touch it, if I can't smell it, if my five senses deny it, it doesn't exist. And sometimes you have to speak to the behemoth. Sometimes you have to explain to the behemoth side of you that things that we don't see still exist. If you take the behemoth's finger and plug it into a socket, the behemoth quickly understands there's something called electricity. No, it can't exist. No human being has ever seen electricity. It's just a theory. Well, when you feel the electric shock and your hair goes sour, you quickly understand that there are things that my eyes don't see, but really do exist. But the behemoth side of me requires a lot of education, a lot of training. And throughout life, there's a fight between these two parts. Part of me that gets it and part of me that doesn't. Part of me that wants to be proper and good and part of me that just doesn't care. And throughout life it remains a total, absolute fight between those two parts. And the Torah is a system of self-perfection. All of the mitzvahs of the Torah helps one side or the other grow, helps one side or the other become more dominant. And I believe when you understand this, you can begin understanding some of the systems of the Torah. Let me explain to you one that I find very fascinating. The holiest day of the year is Yom Kippur. That is a day, it's a Yom Slich or Mechila. It's a day when if it could be Hashem is more accessible, you can more easily feel Hashem's presence, <clears throat> you can daven more, you can reach understandings that you can't reach during the rest of the year. Wouldn't you imagine that that would be the day that the Torah would caution us? Make sure that you come to shul fully energized. Make sure that before you leave your house for chakras, you eat a big breakfast. You get a big day ahead of you of davening, <clears throat> of tshuva, of recognizing Hashem's presence. Make sure you have the strength. Eat a good, solid breakfast before you come to shul. But astonishingly, that's not quite what the Torah tells us. Yom Kippur is a fast day. And you have to ask yourself, why in the world would the Torah forbid us from eating food when food gives us strength, food gives us energy, if anything, that's the day when we need more strength than ever. And again, the Chovos of Avos and Charvaros Lakim clues us into the reason behind it. He says as follows, The Nefesh HaBahami is fed by every activity that we do. When I eat, when I sleep, when I go about all the things that I do, it becomes stronger, it becomes more dominant. In the balance between the Nefesh HaSikli and Nefesh HaBahami, it becomes more primary, it becomes more dominant. The problem is that oftentimes all that we do, and certainly all day long what we do, <coughs> is strengthen the Nefesh Bahami. The Torah gives us a day called Yom Kippur to weaken the Nefesh Bahami. Many of the things we do on Yom Kippur <coughs> will not allow it to be primary. You see, when you eat, it gives the Nefesh Bahami strength, <coughs> it gives it vigor, it gives it vim, and it allows it to be dominant. The Torah says this is a day when your spiritual side is going to come to the fore. When you do chesed, your spiritual side becomes stronger. When you learn Torah, it becomes stronger. When you daven, you're reaching out to Hashem. Only your nefesh saseichel is what's reaching out to Hashem. But the problem is, it's difficult to feel Hashem's presence on Yom Kippur. But watch what happens. You, don't, you start not eating at night, and by the morning you're a little bit hungry. By about 10 o'clock you're a little bit weak. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, somewhere around 2 o'clock, the nefesh abahami is somewhat weakened. And it's at that moment that the real activity starts. You see, at that moment, my perception is more clear. 
the behemoth side of me, the animal side of me is no longer as dominant, no longer as powerful, and my seichel begins to come through. I'm beginning to see things, the haze is starting to <coughs> dissipate, and I'm beginning to understand things. And the reason why you're able to understand things on Yom Kippur <coughs> more clearly than you are during the rest of the year, part of it is the kadush of the day, the holiness of the day, part of it is the changes that I'm bringing in myself. Because I'm exercising the nefesh seichel, and I'm using that part of me, the nefesh bahami, the animal soul is becoming weaker, and in the balance there's a change. The reason why you should make certain decisions on Yom Kippur and not the rest of the year is because you have a greater clarity of understanding. A malach sees the future. A malach sees the consequences. I too have a part of me that sees clearly, but it's hazed over. I'm like Shmuel, that drunk yeshiva guy, I sort of get it, I sort of don't. Yom Kippur is a different day. There's more Kedusha, more, there's more holiness, it's more easy to see Hashem. And as the day wears on, and the Nefesh HaSichli becomes stronger and stronger, the Nefesh Bahami becomes weaker, it becomes much easier for me to perceive Hashem. And this also helps us understand a very, very difficult mitzvah. We are cautioned, we are warned, we are told over and over and over the importance of Limud HaTorah. Talmud Torah, Shokul Keneged Kulam. If you take all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, <clears throat> all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, put them on this side of a scale, take learning Torah on this side of the scale, <clears throat> Talmud Torah, Shokul Keneged Kulam, Talmud Torah outweighs them all. Now I'd like to ask you the following question. Does that make sense? And more specifically, <clears throat> why do you have to spend hours and hours and hours learning parts of the Torah that have no connection to your life? Shor Shenagachazapara. What happens if my cow gores your cow? Who cares? I don't own a cow. You don't own a cow. And what difference does it make? What's Allah if you build a sukkah on top of a sukkah? Well, I've never built one sukkah on top of another sukkah. I have no intention of doing it. But even more profoundly, there are entire parshios in the Torah that lohayavala nivra, irani dachas, doesn't exist. It never was and never will be. A young boy who eats a certain amount of meat, drinks a certain amount of wine <clears throat> against his parents' wishes and only by stealing it, a ben sora mora never was and never will be, at least according to one sheet in the Gemara. Yet we spend a tremendous amount of time studying it, understanding it. What good does it do for me? How does it help me? And again, this Chovos Ovovos is essential for understanding this point. He says <clears throat> it's really quite simple. Any activity that you do strengthens one side of the other. Again, much like a muscle that you use, the more you use it, the stronger it becomes. Everything that we do all day long strengthens the Nefesh Bahami. <clears throat> we eat, we sleep, we procreate. We're very busy at this thing called staying alive. We have to earn a living. We have to go about life in the ways of the world. And all of our energy, tremendous amount of efforts, are spent all day long strengthening the Nefesh Bahami, <clears throat> the animal side of man. By all rights, the nefesh abahami should be totally dominant. And if you could imagine two overlapping circles, where this is a nefesh asichli, and this is a nefesh abahami, the nefesh abahami becomes stronger and stronger, larger and larger, and the nefesh asichli should be totally, totally eclipsed. It should have no existence whatsoever. Why? Because all day long, all that I'm doing is using the Nefesh Bahami. It's what keeps me alive, what keeps me going. I'm using it all the time. It should become more dominant, more dominant. In those two circles, the Nefesh Seichel should totally eclipse, totally cover up the Nefesh Seichel, and the human being should be a walking behemoth. What strengthens the Nefesh Seichel? Not that many things. Obviously mitzvahs. 
doing chesed. You see, when I do something for you, there's a voice inside me that says, what are you doing? Well, I'm helping somebody. Why? Because I care about him. What's in it for you? What's in it for nothing? I feel bad. Forget it, man. you got your own problems. you got your own issues. Why don't you take care of you? Who's, who's worried about you? Who's taking care of you? What do you have to take care of other people? You see, my nefesh Bahami denies and won't allow me to take care of you. It's only my nefesh HaSeich that cares about another human being. <clears throat> Davening is also an example of a nefesh HaSeich coming to the fore. The nefesh Bahami denies Hashem's existence. The nefesh Bahami says to me, you're talking to the walls, there's no one here. My nefesh HaSeich perceives, <clears throat> cuts through the haze and sees Hashem right there. But there isn't that much time that we spend exercising the nefesh HaSeich. The Chavos of Lavovas explains to us that the single greatest nutrient for the Neshama is Limerah Torah. Torah is Hashem's Machshava Kaviyachal, it's the words that come directly from Hashem, and it is super-powered fuel for the Neshama. It's nuclear fuel for the Neshama, and what happens is when I sit down and learn, my Neshama becomes empowered, it becomes fueled. It's rocket fuel for the soul, I become a different person. And when I learn ir dachas, when I learn something that has no connection to my life, it doesn't matter. Because when I learn it deeply, and I strain my brain to understand Hashem's words, the <coughs> words of truth, it changes me and makes me into a different person. How does it change? Because in that balance, the nefesh asichli is being exercised, <coughs> it's becoming stronger, it's becoming more dominant, and I become a different person. When you sit down to learn a Gemara deeply, and really concentrate, and break your head to understand a tosis, you become a different person. All of a sudden, you're more kindly, you're more careful about Shabbos, <clears throat> you no longer are, take such liberties with other people's property, you become a different person. Now, does it mean that automatically, all you have to do is learn and you become a great tzaddik? Not so simply. Because what you've done is you've provided fuel. <clears throat> you've provided the nutrients. But as we mentioned <clears throat> earlier, if you eat a very rich diet, the best nutrients, proteins and carbohydrates, and you have a full, full diet, but you don't go to the gym to work out, you're not going to get big and strong, you're going to get fat. Torah is the ultimate, ultimate nourishment for the soul. It gives your soul the nourishment, <clears throat> the nutrients that it needs, but then you have to go work out. What does working out mean? Going through life as a growing person, using the mitzvahs as it's supposed to be used, dominating and learning and doing chesed, <clears throat> working on your midos, all of the things that we're supposed to be doing. When you're fully nourished, when you have that limerah Torah, which is the rocket fuel for your soul, and you go through the exercises of this gym, you use life as it's supposed to be used, you grow, you accomplish, you become a different person. But both have to be there. And if you try to grow, if you say, listen, I get it. There are mitzvahs to grow. Hashem <clears throat> gave me a system. But I don't need this Torah part. part. You know, I'll do chesed, and I'll give tzedakah, or I'll uh, keep Shabbos, I'll keep kosher. But this limit Torah, this, this learning Torah part, I don't feel I need it. So what's going to happen? So I'd like to give you a mushal that I think will well define what might very well happen. To explain this mushal, <clears throat> I want you to imagine the following. Imagine we have a professional football player, and in fact he's a middle linebacker, and he's huge. He weighs 350 pounds, but he's solid, rock-hard muscle. And we'll give him a name, we'll call him Bubba. Now Bubba never was the <clears throat> brightest of fellows, but Bubba sure is a tough guy, and sure is a strong, solid middle linebacker. He gets down there, and nothing budges him. Well, it happens to be lately, for some reason, Bubba's not feeling so well. And he's kind of like, kind of lazy and kind of like a days ago. And the coach says to him, Bubba, what's with you? 
I don't know, coach, I don't feel so good. Well, Bubba, maybe you should go to the doctor. Nah, I don't know them doctors, they don't know anything anyway. And Bubba goes on and goes on. Suddenly Bubba's starting to lose weight, and he's no longer playing his game well at all. Finally, the coach says, you've got to go to the doctor. <coughs> Bubba shows up to the doctor. The doctor looks at him, takes various tests, takes some blood tests, and says to him, well, I have some bad news for you. What's that? Well, you have protein malabsorption. Protein what? Protein malabsorption. Well, what does that mean? means that you're not getting enough protein. What does that mean, Doc? All I do all day is eat protein. I eat 50 ounces a, a day of meat, fish. That's all I do. Well, you don't understand. You see, the protein that you eat has to be broken down into its amino acids. There are enzymes in your body that break down the protein into its various parts so that your body can use it. For some reason, your body is not producing the amino acids, so you can eat all the protein that you want, but you're not getting enough. Oh, what do you docs know? You guys don't know anything. And Bubba leaves the office and goes back to the playing field, back to his training schedule, but now eats more hamburgers, more steaks, and more fish. Now, what do you think is going to happen to Bubba? So I'd like to share with you that Bubba is not only not going to get bigger, he's going to die in a very short amount of time. Because the body was created with great wisdom, but if you're not able to use the nourishment, if you're not able to use the system properly, you will never succeed. If a person doesn't have the complete mix, if a person is not learning Torah, he will never grow, he'll never reach greatness. Why? Because the mitzvahs are a great exercise routine. They're the gym. They're the things that you need to make yourself stronger. But if you're not getting the nourishment that you need, if you're not involved in learning, if you're not deeply steeped in learning, if you're not racking your brain to understand things the best that you can, what's going to happen is you don't have the spiritual nourishment. But the spiritual nourishment alone either isn't sufficient. You need both. You have to be learning, <clears throat> to be involved in learning, and you also have to have a system of musr, a system <clears throat> of understanding, a system where you use life properly. When a person has both, then they're balanced, then they're growing, then they're reaching their purpose in existence. But throughout life, it's going to be a battle. You see, never does it happen that a person wakes up and says, Ah, crystal clarity, I get it. Mitzvahs are great, Naveras are terrible. Mitzvahs help me, Averas damage me. If I ever got it that clearly, there'd be no reason for life. Life would be over. The reason I was put onto this planet is to be given the opportunity to make the difficult choices. <clears throat> you see, a malach is what a malach is. Whatever state a malach was created in, it remains in that state forever. Every creature in existence Everything that was ever made was created on a certain level and that's where it remains. A malach can't go up and a malach can't go down. A malach may be very holy, but where it began, it remains. Of every creature, of everything in creation, the only one that has the ability to go up or go down is Adam. You see, when Hashem created the world, it was for man. And Hashem placed man in the center of the universe and said, you and you alone have the opportunity to make yourself. You'll be either greater than Malachim or you'll be lower than the Behemoth. But you are in ever-changing state. You will not remain. You will have to choose. But your choices will ultimately define who you are. But you see, you will be credited for making you. You're not predetermined. You're not predestined. A Malach is put on a certain level and that's where it always will be but not you. You have the capacity to change, you have the capacity to grow, you have the ability to shape yourself into what you'll be for eternity. But how do you shape yourself? How do you make yourself into what you'll be? By those very difficult choices. It's when I want and I don't want. I need it and I don't. I have to and I don't. And I'm so confused. 
I'm so utterly conflicted. I want it and I don't want it. It's that difficult choice saying that my seichel will be gover. I will win out. It's those difficult choices that are what define you, that what makes you. That's ultimately what is your success and what is your growth. And for that reason, it's never clear. There'll always be this fog, this haze. I'll always be that shmiel, the drunk yeshiva student. Sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't. I'll always be like that woman in Weight Watchers. I want it and I don't. I want it and I don't. Well, which one am I? Am I confused? Am I a Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Who am I? The answer is I'm both. I'm both a nefesh seichel. I'm a nefesh habahami. I'm both mixed up together. And every action that I engage in changes me, molds me, shapes me into a different person. And I have one more mushal I think is very, very eye-opening. When my son, Shalmari, was a little guy, he was reading this uh, science fiction series called Animorphs. In Animorphs, there's something called a yerk. And Shalmari once came over to me and said, Abba, I got the greatest mushal. He said, what's a yerk? A yerk is this little kind of uh, worm or slug kind of thing. <clears throat> it climbs into your ear and it takes over your brain. So like, you want to go left and it says, uh-uh, we're going right. You want to go forward and it says, uh-uh, we're going back. And it takes over control and you become a puppet in the hands of the earth. So my son Shalmai, was a little guy, and he said to me, Abba, isn't that a great mushal? Isn't that a great parable to the Yetzirah? Right? Yetzirah says, you know, you go left. I want to go right, but it says, go left. And I want to go forward, and it says, I'm going back. So isn't the yerk a great mushal for the Yetzirah? Now, he was a little guy at the time, so I didn't tell him it then. But I believe that that's a terrible mushal for the Yetzirah. I'll explain to you why. You see, when the yerk says, go left, I say, I want to go right, and it controls me. But you see, when I give in to my desires, what happens is, I then want it. You see, I want it and I don't, I want it and I don't, and then I say, okay, I want it. And what happens is that I change. I now become the one who desires. You see, I'm an ever-changing instrument. The minute I give in to my desires, it's not that my desires wanted it, but I sort of forced into it. Now I wanted it. I chose, and I've changed. And every choice that I make becomes a part of me forever. Every time I decide to vanquish, every time I decide to listen to my cycle and say, what does Hashem want? What does the Torah want? I become stronger, I make that choice. And every time I give in, I become the opposite. The human being is an utter, total contradiction. But every action that you engage in, every thought that you think, changes you. When I give in, I become that desire. When I resist, I become that. But at the end of the day, it's me. Every moment of life is precious because it allows me to shape myself into what I will be for eternity.